Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas Studios. And now there's a beach ball on the field. And the ball boys are discussing which one of them's gonna go get it. This is the Press Box. I never realized how boring this game is. Tyler Bischoff. Expired. 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 Adam Candy. I have literally no idea what happens in Candy's briefs. I've just been told that it's good. ESPN Las Vegas. Ed Grady is out today. He will be covering the Raiders at OTAs. One of the few times the media is allowed to come watch the players stretch. So in his place is Adam Candy. Adam, how, how are you feeling today? Well, Tyler, uh, I think you know the experience well. I, I had one of the procedures that a 40-year-old man should definitely have yesterday and had all of my uh, my insides checked out. And so I'm I'm feeling okay. I'm just warning you, you, you might not have three straight hours of me. <laughs> we will take what we can get, Adam. I understand your, um, well, not necessarily pain today, but uh, discomfort and maybe a little bit of fear of what could happen. So <laughs> we'll see exactly how much Adam candy we get today. It should be exciting. Here we go. The first bite. Does Derek Carr have a shot at the MVP? All right. DraftKings has Derek Carr at 22 to 1 to win the MVP. Those are the 12th best odds. Uh, William Hill has Derek Carr uh, a little bit worse at 30 to 1, actually behind some non quarterbacks like Derek Henry and Cooper Cup, and that is uh, 15th best odds. He uh, tied with Jonathan Taylor at 30 to 1. Now, I don't think there's really a, a that legitimate of a shot that Derek Carr wins the MVP. I think there's too many quarterbacks ahead of him that would have to have really bad years. But I'm sort of curious about maybe not winning it, but like how what would have to happen exactly for Derek Carr to even be in the conversation to where, oh, he's like the third or fourth best option. Like how good does this season have to go? And how realistic is it that this season could go that well? Well, the amazing part about this is we have quantifiable numbers that we can use. Uh, normally, you don't have this sort of clear information about a betting market, but because the MVP is so quarterback-driven in the NFL, you really can go and draw some threads through the quarterbacks who have won it over time. So, first of all, in terms of quarterbacks, in the last 20 years, 17 out of 20 times, it's gone to a quarterback for MVP. So it's going to be a quarterback, including each of the last nine seasons. And if you go back and look at those last nine quarterbacks who've won the MVP, you see that you have at least 11 wins. Okay, that doesn't really seem like a big number, right? That's obviously doable, I think. It's probably the far end of what's doable for this Raiders team, but it's doable. And then you see that they won the division. Every single one of them won the division. So if you think that the Raiders can win the division, then I think instead of betting the Raiders to win the division, it was now I think we're mostly at six to one, seven to one on the Raiders to win the AFC West. You probably would be a lot better off going and betting Derek Carr at 30 to one to win the MVP because one and the other likely go together. I That's interesting that what, you said it was nine straight quarterbacks to win MVP have been on a team that won their division. Nine straight. 
Okay. So they do have to win the division for Derek Carr. That, that was one of my questions I put in the rundown. Like, do, you know, it, it's going to be a good division, the AFC West, presumably the second place team, whoever that ends up being, could win 11. Hell, could win 12 games or something like that, depending on how good these teams actually end up being. But it's it's interesting that winning the division, and I will say it does make some sense because if you go through sort of the list of quarterbacks that are ahead of Derek Carr, Pat Mahomes and Justin Herbert are both in the top five. And if you're going to win the division slash win the MVP, th- those are two guys you're. So, yeah, I mean, that that would make sense because if Derek Carr had a great season, the Raiders won 11 or 12 games, but they finished second in the AFC West. It probably means one of Mahomes or Justin Herbert had an even better season. And that would typically lead to that person winning MVP. So, if 11 wins, you sort of view that as the high end. And I, I think you're you're kind of right there. This team is probably maxing out at 11 or 12 wins. Is that enough to win the AFC West this year? Because I, I can't quite figure out, are we going to have a, a Chiefs or a Chargers or any one of these teams like have a great year, best record in the AFC, pushing 13 or 14 wins? Or is it more likely because all of them, except I think the Broncos have like a top 10 strength of schedule going into this year, the division's really difficult. Like, is it more likely we have an AFC West division winner that might only have 10 or 11 wins and the worst team might have like seven or eight and they're bunched up for the entirety of the season. I mean, think about the fact that if you have that happen, then you have to assume actually all the teams probably played fairly well, right? If you have nobody truly bottom out to the point where it's a, three or four win season then you came in and you had teams that performed relatively well to expectations so if you look at strength of schedule overall i think it's going to guide you right the kansas city chiefs have the most difficult schedule in the league this year by uh, sharp football analysis rankings the raiders are third they have the third hardest schedule in the nfl And all of the AFC West teams are in the upper half, at least. Denver is in the middle of the pack at 17th, and that is the most favorable schedule that any of these teams has. So if you look at what it's going to take, it's going to take not only winning your, uh, you know, cupcake games, which is not always a guarantee. Hello, Indianapolis Colts last year. Like, you look at the Raiders and you say, what are they going to have to do in division? So the betting markets don't think anyone is running through this division. Because right now, the Kansas City Chiefs are the betting favorite, even though not nearly as prohibitive as they have been in past years, to win the division. But if you look at on William Hill right now, they have markets up for how many games will teams win within the division. And the Kansas City Chiefs have the top number at three and a half. <laughs> so the betting market is essentially saying, even if you do really well in the AFC West, you're going to go four and two. I, okay, let me ask you this. What's the record of the worst team in the AFC West this year? Well, there, there are there are tail cases, I think, for the Broncos, the Chargers, and the Raiders that are lower than the tail cases for the Kansas City Chiefs. So I would say it's probably six wins. For one of these teams, if something goes wrong, if they don't play up to expectations, let's say let's say the Raiders offensive line is as bad as it looks here on June 2nd, then the Raiders could easily win just six games this year. I don't know that it goes a whole lot lower than that just because of the quality of the quarterbacks. Yeah, six wins and and quarterback wise, obviously barring injuries, right? Like if 
Oh, Russell for sure. Wilson, yeah, if Russell Wilson gets hurt in week one, the Broncos might win three games. But yeah, six wins, assuming some level of quarterback health. That's sort of the number that I was looking at, too. And I'm the thing that I'm curious about, and this goes for the AFC West, but also it's like 12 teams in the entire AFC because a lot of teams kind of went for it this offseason. Like somebody in the AFC West is probably finishing with like six or seven wins. And there's going to be four or five AFC teams that finish with eight wins or less that thought they were playoff level teams. I'm fascinated to see like the response from fans, but also from like some ownership groups with like the Raiders and Broncos have first year head coaches, but both expect to be in the postseason. Like what happens if the Raiders go six and 11 where you're coming off a 10 win season? where you went to the postseason, you had an interim head coach for the majority of that year, you bring a new front office, bring a new head coach, and they go all in on this year. What happens if they go 6-11 and 11 or 7-10? and 10? Because that's possible. And same for Denver, who brought in Russell uh, Wilson and helped put the Chargers in there, too, who are being crowned as, like, this team's going to be in the playoffs, fighting with the Chiefs, could be one of the three or four best in the, in the AFC. Like, one of these teams is probably going to win six or seven games, and I'm fascinated to see the fallout when we kind of know it's going to so, – somebody's not going to live up to expectations. We know that's going to happen, but all four of them have such high expectations that I'm, I'm fascinated to see what the fallout is when one of these teams ultimately is 6-11 and 11 or 7-10. or seven and 10. Well, the Broncos have married themselves to Russell Wilson here, right? Like That, that doesn't mean there are going to be any changes. you got a first-year head coach both in Denver – and with the uh, Las Vegas Raiders, you have a second-year head coach with Brandon Staley. So I, I think all of these regimes are going to be held harmless to some degree. It's just going to be a matter of what those teams then can do in following years. So the Raiders have gone all in this year. That's very clear. So if you look at their cap space for 2023, right now they would have $23 million in cap space, $14.5 million in effective cap space, and they only have 39 players under contract as of next as of now for next year they already have 15 million dollars in dead cap the only team that starts 2022 with more dead cap in 2023 than the raiders is the eagles getting themselves from out from under carson wentz so the raiders are in a situation where yes they have a brand new general manager and a brand new head coach but they also have a lot of roster crunch issues coming next year if this team proves to have some sort of fatal flaw, which, again, I don't necessarily know that it could be anything other than the offensive line this year. But the offensive line going south for the Raiders would undercut all of the skill position upgrade that you get from Devontae Adams. It would be pretty bad if there was a different fatal flaw that wasn't the offensive line this year because we don't think that offensive line is going to be very good as it is. If something else is a fatal flaw... They might have some serious issues there. Um, on the MVPs, uh, if we move off of Derek Carr and the Raiders, who who would you bet on, or have you already bet on somebody? Who would you bet on to win the MVP out of this list? Uh, right now, you can get Lamar Jackson at twenty five to one, and I know you wrote him down, but that actually was the name that already had jumped out at me. Uh, I am in on the Ravens in a way that nobody else around me seems to be in on the Ravens. Uh, if you look at the fact that this team got absolutely destroyed by injuries last year. And the fact that even relative health probably makes them a 10 or 11 win team last year. Then I think you can look at them this year and say, I don't know that the division is going to be as tough as everybody says it's going to be because 
the Steelers are going to spend the first half of the year trying to convince us that Mitch Trubisky and Kenny Pickett can play quarterback in the NFL in 2022. I'm not sure they can. Uh, the Browns probably are not going to have Deshaun Watson for a significant period of time, especially after we just saw another new allegation of sexual assault come out against him this week. And the Bengals are probably due for some level of regression. So I think the Ravens are in a great spot to win the division, to meet criteria number one, to win at least 11 games, which would be criteria number two. And Lamar Jackson can qualify for this award in the minds of voters without having to throw the ball extremely well, right? People say, oh, what happened to Lamar? He can't throw accurately anymore. Look, in his MVP season, he completed 66% of his passes. In the last two years, he's completed 64% of his passes in both years. Lamar didn't forget how to throw the ball. He hasn't had anybody to catch it. And the line got decimated last year with Ronnie Stanley in particular being out for the season. So I don't mind Lamar Jackson at all because I think he can have a relatively good passing season and then run the way Lamar Jackson can run behind a rebuilt line, starting with the first-round pick Tyler Lindebaum at center. Yeah, if you look at William Hill and the players that are 20-1 to 1 or uh, higher for odds to win the MVP, you get Derrick Henry, non-quarterback. Cooper Cup, non-quarterback. Then Kyler Murray. I think your point's about winning the division, winning 11 games. The Ravens and Lamar Jackson have a much better shot than Kyler Murray. Then you get to Derek Carr. Same situation there. I think the Ravens have a better shot. Then Jonathan Taylor, non-quarterback. Debo Samuel, non-quarterback. Jalen Hurts, maybe the Eagles can win that division, but I think most people will look at it uh, in spite of Jalen Hurts, not because of Jalen Hurts. Like, I think very clearly, anybody outside sort of the top 12 here or 8 here, whatever that number is, it, Lamar Jackson's the guy, and I'm, I, I think they win the division. I think the Ravens are the best team in that division. I think the Bengals are a high, highly likely candidate, one of those teams to go from Super Bowl appearance to missing the postseason. So I would, I, I think Lamar Jackson's a very good choice on this list as well yeah and to the Jalen Hurts case let's talk about that for a second because this the Jalen Hurts case is connected to the Derek Carr case for MVP either of these guys if they go out and have a top top flight season I guarantee that someone within those 50 AP NFL voters is going to look and say well yeah they gave him a receiver what did you expect right whether it's Devonte Adams or whether it's AJ Brown Someone's going to look at those guys and say, well, it wasn't them. They had help and probably might even split up votes, because if you say Derek Carr has an MVP level season, then you're probably saying Devontae Adams had one of the best years of his career and probably similar for A.J. Brown. Oh, no, no. He's throwing to um, I can't even think of any of the wide receivers names that aren't Devontae Adams at the moment. How about Demarcus Robinson? I was gonna. I don't know why Brian Edwards was the name that came to my tongue. And I was That's like, no. unfortunately that could be he's difficult. Not, he's not on the team anymore. That's going to be hard to do. All right, coming up next, we'll jump into the NBA because Game One of the Finals is here. Yeah, I think all of those things have helped. You know, from saying that we need to split the group up or get rid of you know somebody or me and JB can't play together. Uh, that fueled us um to to figure it out and you know not run from it that you know we are obviously are gonna be here for a while and that we trust in each other and, and that we had to be better so yeah i think instead of separating we became closer it's the press box with grainy and bischoff on espn las vegas all right adam game one of the nba finals is tonight um, am I going to be upset because we get a bunch of blowouts in the finals like we did in the conference finals? Yes, but I also oh. don't think that means we're going to get a quick series. 
How's that sound? Man. Is that better so, for you? You get a so whole what, bunch of blowouts? I, I mean, so like the worst six or seven game series ever where everybody wins by 20 points, but they keep changing, like kind of like Miami-Boston just did for seven games. Oh, God, please don't subject me to another Miami-Boston, right? <laughs> like, I, I don't want games where one team only scores 80 and nobody looks at it and says, oh, wow, they only scored 80. You just look at it like, yeah, it's the heat. So, yeah, this series... <laughs> I think at least you're going to get some high-end talent every game. I don't think it's going to be all blowouts, but what I think is going with the Warriors is what you and I talked about last week, where I think if the Warriors find themselves, let's say, up two games to none in game three in Boston, and Boston comes out and blitzes them in the first half, I think Steve Kerr is going to say to Steph Curry, grab a seat, we'll see you in game four, so you could have a blowout for that kind of reason. But does that mean we get two close games in one and two? Because I'll take that. I'll be perfectly fine with that. All right, here's actually what I think. I think game one is not going to be close. Game two and three potentially would be a lot closer. I happen to think that the Warriors getting all this rest after the Celtics have been beaten to hell over the last three weeks is a pretty good thing for Golden State. So does that matter beyond game one to you? Like, is that just no. game one? So you think that's a series-long effect? Oh, no, no, I, no, no. I'm saying I think it only matters for game one. Oh, yeah. okay. I, no, I, I, absolutely, I absolutely think it only matters for game one because you have no idea what sort of game you're going to go out there and get in game one. And look, by the time we throw the powder keg combination of Marcus Smart and Draymond Green out there <laughs> together on the same court, you have no idea what's going to happen in terms of these teams getting physical with each other. And think back to the last time we saw Golden State and Boston on the same court back in March, Steve Kerr was pretty upset with Marcus Smart for diving into Steph Curry and causing the injury that kept him out for the rest of the regular season. See, you think we're going to get high-end talent, but then after six players get ejected and suspended, we're going to have 41 minutes of Peyton Pritchard on the floor, and we're going to be looking around saying, this is the finals? I want Bielitsa against Taco Fall. <laughs> and I know Taco Fall is not even on the roster anymore, but he was at the game a couple of rounds ago, so I think they should just bring him out if they need to. I mean, if there's enough suspensions, Taco Fall will be on the roster eventually. In the yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, hell, we might get Donovan Williams drafted in just for uh, Game 7. <laughs> so... What I find interesting and what, I, what I'm curious to find out is which side, which team sort of strength ends up being the best part of this series, the Celtics defense or the Warriors offense, where you have uh, both sides of those are pretty deep in terms of competent players, right? The Celtics have a list of guys that are great defenders. The Celtics can do a lot defensively. They could technically switch everything if they really wanted to, but they don't do that. They alter their ball screen uh, defenses and their off-ball screen defenses based on who they're playing. They can do a lot of different things. But then on the other side, I mean, you've got four guys averaging 15 points per game in the postseason. You've got four guys for the Warriors that have had big playoff games at some point. So I, I'm curious to see sort of which side that has a lot of depth. This isn't a, hey, you've got a big two and that's sort of it, a bunch of role players. You've got four guys on each side that, hey, four great defenders or plus four good offensive players. And I'm curious to see which one of those wins out in this series because we're getting more of a depth finals than we are a true like big two or big three type of finals. So I would say keep in mind also that the Boston Celtics were the number one defensive team by defensive rating this year, right? Who was number two? Was it Golden State? Yeah, Golden State was number two in defensive rating this year. And I know a lot of that had to do with having 
Gary Payton on the floor for a lot of the season and frankly not having Clay Thompson on the floor for a lot of the season. But at the same time, I don't think the Warriors are the same defensive team they've been in the past. And clearly by their playoff defensive rating, which is a lot worse than their regular season, they might not be. Uh, but I I happen to think that Steve Kerr is smart enough to know that you don't want to deal with the Boston defense in the half court. And so I think the Warriors' smartest play, especially early in this series, is going to be get out and run, get out in transition, and maybe try to push the pace in order to push the scoring against Boston. Because if you have to play against this team in the half court, where basically they can go one through five switch, you're in a lot of trouble. All right, we've got news this morning from the NBA, this more on the broadcaster side. Uh, for anybody paying attention, Mike Breen, ESPN's top play-by-play guy for the NBA, missed Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals because he tested positive for COVID. According to Andrew Marshawn, Breen still needs to be cleared for tonight's game. Um, but Adrian Wojnarowski tested positive for COVID, and Jeff Van Gundy has tested positive for COVID. If you watched and listened to Game 7, there's no real surprise that Jeff Van Gundy tested positive for COVID because he sounded sicker than I've ever heard somebody doing a live broadcast sound during that game. And he happened to be unmasked sitting next to Mark Jackson and Mark Davis for the entire broadcast. Or Mark Jones, I apologize. Mark Jones, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, um, you know, I, I don't know what the future is for those two guys. Tyler, I think it's clear. We got to be ready. You and I have to be ready tonight. Are we the taco fall of this scenario? I, I, we're the Donovan Williams of this scenario. Oh, like, okay. I, I, think that, I think it's not out of the question that you and I need to call this game tonight. <laughs> and I, I don't know. We both have experience as play-by-play. For those who don't know, Tyler and I actually have broadcasted games together before. Okay. Welcome back to UNLV Baseball from, what, seven to eight years ago. This, this, this could be fun. Okay. Come, I think we need to be ready. Will we be on clean feed watching our TVs? Is that the, the game plan? No, don't you remember when Mike Breen and Jeff Van Gundy called two games in the same day? They sent the ESPN private plane for them. I, I oh, think the, the okay. yeah, yeah the the uh, the ESPN Las Vegas uh, you know prop plane is going to be ready to take <laughs> us up to Oakland or San Francisco for this game. All right, before uh, we go to break, who do you think actually wins this series? I think the Celtics are a very live dog sitting there at plus 140 plus 150 depending on where you get it but i do think golden state ultimately wins this series i boston can be very good shutting down a team with one or two weapons they have not faced an offense as diverse as this throughout the playoffs they caught no chris middleton they caught no james harden or ben simmons and they caught the miami heat which you know jimmy butler alone so i don't think they can keep up defensively with the Golden State Warriors. Celtics in seven. Coming up next, Rachel Galligan joins the show. We're back to the press box with Grady and Bischoff. Joining us now is Rachel Galligan. Make sure you follow her on Twitter at RachGal. Good morning, Rachel. How are you today? Good morning, guys. I'm good. Happy to be here. How are you? Good. So, Two years, you've come on this show, and we've talked about the Aces, their chances to win the title. They usually come up short. And we've talked about the way Bill Lambeer ran this team and how they would often get beat by teams that would spread the floor and take advantage of how post-heavy the Aces were. Becky Hammond's in charge now. 
Liz Cambage isn't here. They've got just Asia Wilson, and they're playing as spread out as I've seen them play. I don't think I expected it to be this good, though, right away. Did you think just simply changing the scheme would be this beneficial immediately for the Aces? I'm, I'm with you. I did not. <clears throat> I mean, I knew it would look different, and I was excited to see what that looked like. I thought there would be a little more inconsistencies early on. Um, but, wow, here we are. And this team is clicking on all cylinders out of the gate offensively. And it is not – I mean, if it's not the most fun team to watch in the WBA, I don't know who is. I mean, I'm having an absolute blast following this team. What do you think Becky Hammond in particular has brought to the Aces franchise? We, we can see the X's and O's as we, as we just talked about here, but what, what do you think beyond the chalkboard she has you know, provided for this franchise? Well, I mean, I think it's just nothing against Bill Beer. You know, we, we could talk about the job he did, and, and I do think he did a great job, but it was like a passing of the torch of, okay, I've obviously only been able to get this franchise and this team to a certain point. Now it feels a little bit stale and like it's not getting us that championship that we want. So let's bring in Becky Hammond. <laughs> and obviously, you know, her ability to, to bring in and implement kind of an NBA style of play, we, like you said, we can talk about those X's and O's, but I think more than anything, it's just someone who's relatable, someone who's been there, who's done that, who's, she has one of the most decorated WNBA careers that she played forever. I mean, she knows this league. She knows what it takes to win. In this league, now, grand basketball has changed the style of play, has changed. I think that's where you have kind of that NBA experience that she has. But, you know, like, if I'm Kelsey Plummer, I'm Kelsey Mitchell, <clears throat> you know, there's, of course, I will listen to Bill, Bill Lambeer, but it just hits a little bit differently, you know, when you've got Becky Hammond sitting there talking to you, teaching you things, um, investing in this team the way she is, and, and designing this team the way she has out on the floor. I just think it's a whole new energy and a, new, a whole new level of excitement. So it'd be unlikely, it'd be incredible if this team were to win 90% of its games for the rest of the regular season. I expect there will be some regression from the Aces. What, is there anything so far you've looked at and said, oh, that could be an issue, that could be something that trips them up, whether it's in the regular season or the postseason? Like, has there been anything that's jumped out to you as a potential issue for this team? I mean, you have to look at the depth. That's my biggest question mark of this team. I think... You know, the offensive firepower with Jackie Young, Kelsey Palmeja, Wilson, Chelsea Gray, Jerka Hamby, amazing. You know, I mean, they're putting up, all of them are averaging well over 13, about, about 13 points a game. But then after, you know, you hit the bench, there's a little bit of some question marks. I mean, I know that Teresa Plaisant has, has given some serviceable minutes on here and there. Asia Shepard has, has done a pretty good job as a rookie. Then you've got Sydney Colson, Kirsten Bell, who's not got as much experience as I probably would have anticipated so far for the, for the draft pick. but um, And then hopefully Ricardo Williams returns at some point here soon because I think she is kind of that next tier of offensive firepower that they need. But, you know, deep into the season, deep into a playoff run, into a series, you know, you're a lot of miles on those five players. Now, granted, they're all in phenomenal shape. They all look more than capable of being able to play at the pace that they're playing at. And, have, and, and honestly, they're having a blast doing it. But, that, that's my biggest concern. You know, if someone goes down, knock on wood, someone's in foul trouble, um, how do they – they can't go very deep into the bench. And I don't know what that looks like in September. You know, it's, it's really fun right now on June 2nd, and it looks really great, but how sustainable is that? that that's the biggest question mark for me. 
it seems like when you look at the West, you know, Seattle has not really been able to hit its stride yet in part because of the COVID absences that they've had. Mm-hmm. They haven't really had that consistency. But when it comes to the Western Conference and the Aces prospects for being able to win the West, is it really only Seattle that can chase them down potentially? Well, as of now, yes. <clears throat> but, you know, Seattle is starting to hit their stride a little bit. They have won their last four, but it just doesn't quite feel like it's at that point yet. You know, you're kind of, I'm with you, you're kind of waiting for that next level that we've seen this team be able to do in the past. Um, you know, I Phoenix Mercury have a lot to figure out. We don't have enough time on this show to talk about what's going on there. <laughs> I think the wild card might be the Sparks. Now, you know, that, that team has so many characters and, 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 and uh, <laughs> talent, um, but it's just like, when, when are they going to figure out, if they ever figure it out? You know, I mean, you've got so many different players in there with Cambage, Kennedy Carter, Neko Zumake. I mean, when, when Christy Tolliver comes back, how much does that shake everything up? I mean, so there's no doubt that there's talent on L.A. It's just a question mark, you know, are they going to be able to come together, you know, and gel enough as a team to, to string together wins? against anyone in the league, let alone the Aces, you know, and slow them down defensively. That, to me, outside of Seattle, I think it's really tough. Seattle's the, the main one to me. Uh, there's a story this morning in The Athletic about WNBA expansion and how we could yeah. be getting two new teams announced at the end of this year. Um, what are your expectations? What cities do you think would get a WNBA expansion team at the end of the season? I'm not going to show my cards too much, but I, 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 you know, I personally would love to have one in Nashville. I don't know how, how realistic that is. I don't know if that will happen. I definitely think Bay Area, that's always been a really, really high one on the list and a hot topic. And um, one, I know that, you know, the ball is being moved in terms of getting that done. Um, I think Toronto is an intriguing one. I'm not sure how I feel about that, um, especially in these times. It's just it's, it's challenging. So for me, personally, I would love to see one in, in Oakland and also in Nashville. But I think it'll more than likely end up being Philly and Oakland. Yeah, Rachel, we talked about on this show in the past that you know my side gigs, I referee women's basketball at the college level, and I've just seen from the pro level on down to the college level – the increase in talent and the you know, just how much skill there is in the game feels like it has gone up exponentially in the last decade or so. Uh, what effect do you think that is having on the WNBA in terms of its product, in terms of people being interested in being able to look at expansion? Well, it's just, you know, the, these coveted roster spots, right? Everybody always says, oh, 144 roster spots. Well, now... With the new CBA, you've got teams that aren't even maxing up their rosters with 12 players. They've got 11. Um, so it's so competitive and it's so challenging. And it's just bursting at the seams, like you said, because at the grassroots level, um, travel basketball is, is growing at an all-time high in terms of just the development um, and just the competition during the summer months for, for high school clubs. Um, and, and I think the popularity of the league, especially especially in the last, I would say, five years, has started to really <clears throat> roll over and resonate with those younger players. But, I mean, there, there's still a ways to go. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, at some point it's like we either expand the rosters or we have to expand as, as, a, as, a, um, as, as a league because there is just too much talent. The game of women in women's basketball is trending upward every single year. Um, and, and, you know, the league – 
right now. It's not not even close, you know. So there's so much talent that's just going on playing in other countries, and we're not really getting a chance to to see that right off the bat. Um, But it's going to happen, and I'm really thrilled about it. And, again, I just think they work hand-in-hand in in terms of the popularity, but also the development of the grassroots level. So expansion could lead to, you know, the Aces not trading for the 8th and 13th picks and then cutting those players less than a month later. Um, we'll see. I, I'm still pretty critical on that. I am still pretty critical. Um, you know, there, there was, a, there were some moves that happened amongst the, you know, the front office, like two days before the draft, which I know made things pretty difficult. And, and I think, you know, you're going to, it's going to be really interesting for agency with, with Las Vegas. You've got a lot of free, Kelsey Plum in particular. I would imagine she's going to have a lot of teams buying after her. Um, I don't know what this looks like a year from now, because again, I, I think Las Vegas has one of the biggest free agency kind of changes this year. You know, how, how, how are they going to be able to sustain, sustain this team and keep this talent at the all-time high? Um, but, yes, I do think that their, their draft and some of the moves they, they made will hurt them a little bit moving forward. Well, she is Rachel Galligan. Make sure you follow her on Twitter at RachGal. Check her out at Just W Sports and Winsider. Rachel, as always, we appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate you guys. So, Rachel Galligan there on the WNBA and the 9-1 and Las Vegas Aces. They play the Connecticut Sun again tonight. Back-to-back games in Vegas against Connecticut. Uh, and if you're, ju- if you're just going by net rating this year, the Aces are number one in the WNBA at 14. The Connecticut Sun are number two at 13.9. So, still early in the season, but these have been far and away the two best teams in the WNBA. Coming up next... The Oakland A's really don't want to be in the Coliseum. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios, this is the Press Box with Graney and Bischoff. The Oakland A's have a pursuit of a new ballpark. They've been to Las Vegas multiple times, using us as leverage against what they want to get done in Oakland, which is their Howard Terminal site. Uh, that would cost uh, quite a lot of money to the A's, but also publicly. In the meantime, we have seen lots of pictures. I believe it was the Detroit Tigers broadcast booth that had to leave where they were in the press box because of a rodent infestation at one point. Uh, But the A's sent a letter to the Coliseum Authority basically complaining about how bad the Coliseum was. From oaklandside.org, they wrote, Feces from feral cats, a moth infestation, mold, a nearby homeless encampment, broken seats, and plumbing and water leaks all made the checklist of problems. Vice President of State Operations David Renetti sent to Coliseum Authority Executive Director in a letter on May 12th. Um, Adam, earlier, I think it was last week, I said on this show that I think the A's are trying to make their attendance look bad by not they they raise some season ticket prices they don't do very many good deals they don't do very many giveaways parking's very expensive to go to a's games i think they're trying to make their attendance look bad so they can point back to the coliseum and say look how bad we have it now please give us money for a new ballpark i also feel like they have no problem with all of these stories about feral cats or possums being in the press box i think they kind of like when those stories happen right now at the coliseum yeah it doesn't seem coincidental at all does it that this letter is out there not that the stadium authority isn't a public board so that material is available but the a's seem to be an organization at the moment that 
has no trouble whatsoever making sure that all available materials make their way in front of friendly media members. And right now it's hard to look at it as anything other than a very craven play by Oakland to try to drive. I don't know. I don't know what to say. It's this is such a frustrating story, Tyler. It really is, because a lot of these things that are in this letter are not new. Right. Saying there's a nearby homeless encampment. You ever been to the Coliseum? Like there have been homeless encampments near the Coliseum for decades. That's not new. Highlighting it now just feels craven to me. And so when we look at what's going on with that franchise, like what is the end game here in the way they're going about it? Right. At what point have you torpedoed yourself so badly that Oakland is looking at you and saying, wow, uh, I don't even know how you're making any money. And Vegas is looking at you and saying, do we really want this? That That's the part that's interesting to me. They are not doing anything to help themselves out right now. And it all appears to be a play to better themselves in the future, right? Obviously, the A's don't want to play at one of the worst ballparks in one of the worst stadiums in all of the United States, if not the worst for professional sports. Like, obviously, they don't want that long term, but their goal is to get a brand new shiny stadium that they can make a whole bunch of money off of. But the way that they've decided to do it is to spend however long it's going to take, a year, two years, whatever, basically sabotaging themselves. Like, they're making themselves look bad, and they're not doing anything to actually help. Obviously, there's the on-field side of this where the A's stripped down their roster and Eno Saris of the athletic he actually wrote a good story on this where we've seen the a's strip their roster down plenty of times before but they still usually go out and spend some of the money they saved to make the team competitive they did not do that this offseason they stripped it down and then did not spend so on the field they're not helping themselves by having a competitive team trying to win or anything like that they're they're bad right now and that's on purpose but then off the field they're not trying to get fans there. They're happy with the bad attendance. And now you have this, which, listen, I don't necessarily blame the A's for the problems at the Coliseum, but the A's aren't doing a whole lot to try to fix it other than publicize it, other than make sure everybody knows. And so how much are they going to sabotage themselves? How bad are they going to make themselves look to, I guess, try to get pity money from Oakland so that they can build a new ballpark? So my question, Tyler, goes back to the possum. Are you familiar with the press box possum? Uh, apparently not as much as you. You make this sound like there's a lot of backstory here. Well, no, and I'm not talking about this press box possum. I'm talking about the actual possum that was making its way through the Oakland Coliseum press box in the middle of an A's game to where all of the beat writers were taking their camera phones and snapping pictures of this possum trying to get in through the ceiling in the Oakland Coliseum press box, no one seemed to be like, red alert, let's run. It was just sort of like, eh, you know, like another thing going on in the Coliseum, ho-hum. I thought to myself, and I haven't really been able to confirm this with anyone yet, but have we been able to account for the whereabouts of Dave Cable at the time that this was happening? Because to <laughs> me, it feels like he might have been somewhere in the air ducts in the Oakland Coliseum opening up a little cage and letting this possum run out into the press box and saying to everybody, and there'll be more if we don't see more stories about this stadium falling apart. Okay. 
from the fan perspective, is there a worse team of our four major sports to be a fan of right now than the Oakland A's? Oh, sure there is. Of course. I mean, look, do you really want to try to convince yourself that everything's okay with the Washington football team slash commanders? You know, like, there. do you want to have to be a Cleveland Browns fan right now and say to yourself, well, I'm sure that these 23 women were just all in cahoots trying to get some money. Like, if the worst I have to do is go sit in an Oakland A's game where I can have a whole section of the stadium to myself on any given night <laughs> and just sort of sit back, relax, and enjoy some Bay Area cool weather, it's not that bad. Is that the list, though? Is it Commanders and Browns? I mean, that's the worst. Do you want to be a Houston Texans fan? Right? Like, I, I mean, I could go team by team through the league if, if we – we want to do this, right? Or you probably go through the NBA and the NHL too. I mean, you want? I don't know. You want to be a Kings fan, Sacramento, right you now? You want to be a Coyotes like, fan? I think Coyotes might be on there. I think I'd rather be a Kings fan than an A's fan because this, like, there there are bad teams, but I, how many teams are like self sabotaging to intentionally not only be bad, but like if you're a fan that wants to go to games, it's. It's got to be one of the worst experience atmospheres, I guess would be the right word, atmospheres to go to as a fan. Like, yeah, you have a whole section to yourself, but I don't want that if I go watch my favorite team play. I I, I want there to be a crowd. I want to enjoy it. So it's a, like there are teams with like Washington, like Cleveland, that have worse sort of off-field situations at the moment. But just from a fan enjoying my team, the, the A's are, are got to be bottom five. Oh, yeah, without question. And I was trying to be a little bit tongue-in-cheek with some of that because I've spent enough time in the Oakland Coliseum over the years to know that it's just not really a fun place to watch a game, period. Maybe if Mount Davis had never been built and you could still have a nice view of the Oakland Hills while you sit with 5,000 of your closest friends, then you could have a good time out there. It's really not a great place to see a game. And you're right, in the end, I don't see who the Oakland A's are helping right now. Because I think both the governments of Oakland and Las Vegas look at this franchise and go, wow, what are you doing? <laughs> it's not the Raiders where we had so many people being like, it would be really cool to have the Raiders, an NFL team here. I I don't think we're going to get that same oohs and ahs over a baseball team that is the Oakland A's and what the A's have been this season and what has happened to this franchise. They're kind of an embarrassment on pretty much every level they could be an embarrassment on.